You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. So it would really help you to have a Bible out and open there on your lap. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And as you're turning there... Um, Last week, I missed you. I was down in San Antonio preaching for a friend of mine, and uh, if you were here last Sunday, uh, Dan Hutchins preached and did a great job working through Mark chapter 11, um, the first section there, talking about this idea of what kind of a Jesus do you want. I mean, if you haven't encouraged him with that, you need to. Um, he spent a lot of time working hard to be able to serve you last Sunday morning, and so, uh, you know, he did a great job. So I just want to make sure you're encouraging him in that um, when you get a chance. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, Let me kind of preface uh, with a couple of things. First of all, uh, we're slated to be in Mark chapter 11, just kind of picking up the next uh, section there. And and we have taken a a little bit of a right turn, a little bit of a detour away from from Mark. And I want to spend time in 2 Corinthians 4 primarily for this reason. God is continuing to put an ache in me in a certain little area and component of our church that I, I just have to get out to you. And so I think 2 Corinthians 4 is the best place to see this and for these sort of things to come out. So let me just kind of preface what, what that thing is that God has been stirring in me and just putting in me uh, by going back four and a half years ago. Uh, four and a half years ago, a group of about 20 or 25 adults, along with my wife and I, planted Stonegate. And it's fun just looking out and seeing uh, many of you who are in that little small crew of people. And uh, over the last four and a half years, we have seen God do some really, really remarkable things. And, you know, when I think about those early days of church planting, it would, hard, it would be hard for me to describe all the hopes and dreams that I had for us as a church family uh, then and now um, that, that I have. But if I were to cut all of those just directly to the core and describe what, lied, you know, what, what lies right at the center of the hopes and dreams that we have for, for this church, I, I think I would articulate it you know, in something like this. The, the hopes and dreams we have center on making disciples of Jesus. That, that we want to be a place that makes wonderful disciples of Jesus. And disciple making really comes in two components. It comes in two different, you know, two different ways. And one way that make, making disciples, you know, kind of goes is people actually meet Jesus. Like you're not making disciples if people aren't meeting Jesus. So part of making disciples means that Jesus is rescuing people from hell. And he's doing that among this church family. Like he's saving people, he's changing people. People are going from eternal death to eternal life in him. Like that's part of making disciples is that people are meeting Jesus. And so we have all these hopes wrapped around that. And then there's these hopes on the second side of making disciples of people actually maturing in Jesus. So you have people meeting Jesus and people growing and maturing in Jesus, learning what it looks like to live with Jesus as the centerpiece of their life. Like what that looks like, what that means for our life to revolve around our Savior and Lord Jesus. And and let me just take a a quick hiatus here and and clarify this. A church can bring great glory to God in either of those. Like if it does either of those, like both of those bring glory to God. So if a church is doing the meeting Jesus thing, that is bringing great glory to God. If a church is doing the maturing in Jesus thing, that brings great glory to God. But if we want to bring most glory and most fame to the name of Jesus, it is when a church is doing both of those, both 
People are meeting Jesus in a, among a church family and people are maturing in Jesus. And we want to be a place where both of those two things are happening, meeting and maturing. We want to make more disciples and we want to make better disciples. We want both of those two things to happen. Now, when I think about the last four and a half years for us as a church family, I think God has poured out an extraordinary amount of grace for us as we have matured disciples around here. It has been, I'm telling you, the last four and a half years have been absolutely remarkable in some of the things that we have seen. We have seen people come in who knew Jesus and they have gotten wrecked all over again with Jesus. And that has been unbelievable to see. I think I would say it this way for a lot of people that have come into Stonegate. They have gotten new eyes and a new taste for just how great the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It has cultivated like a zealousness in our faith and a maturity in our faith. It has been so incredible to see those things happen. And here's really what I want to say this morning, though. And that has happened. There has been a, a maturing. That, that thing has been poured out an extraordinary amount of grace here. But I have got like this growing ache and this longing and, and this desire to see more people meet Jesus here. To see more people go from death to life. Go from spiritually dead to spiritually, spiritually alive. I've got like this ache in me that I'm praying that by God's grace, he would extend out across our church family and maybe even use this morning as the start of that for us to see more of that happening here. People meeting Jesus, people being saved by Jesus, the radical work of Jesus snatching a person out of eternal wrath and delivering them into eternal, the eternal welcome of God for that to be happening here, for people to be saved. People to meet Jesus. Don't you want more of that? Now, let me clarify. That has happened here and it is happening here. Next week is Easter and we're going to get the chance to baptize in our Easter services next week. And you're going you're to get to see the fruit of some of what God has been doing as far as rescuing people. People meeting Jesus. So I'm so thankful for what God has done in that. But I have got this little holy discontent in me that I want more of that. Now, I want to see more people collide with Jesus, get rescued by Jesus, saved by Jesus. And I want him to do that here among us. Now, in light of that, I want to talk about 2 Corinthians 4. And here's what I really want you to see this morning. I want you to see a picture of conversion. A picture of what it means for God to rescue and for God to save a human being. And then I want you to see God's means in conversion. So both the picture of it and then God's means of how he goes about doing that work of conversion. So that's this morning. Both the picture and the means of conversion. So we're going to start in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1. This is going to be the picture of conversion. We're going to get to see a tangible picture in 2 Corinthians 4 of what it means for God to save a human being. So here's the picture. Starting in verse 1 it says this. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
Now, just as a descriptor of like what a minister and a pastor is, wouldn't we all agree that the church at large in our culture could use more ministers who are the one, you know, verses one and two sort of ministers? Not losing heart, not tampering, not, not depending on cunning ways. And now here is a description. In verses three and four, he is about to describe our condition before we meet Jesus. Our condition pre-Jesus looks like this, verses three and four. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. So he gives us two things here, one in verse 3 and one in verse 4, to describe what it means, like what it, what it means to, to not be in Christ. What it, what it means to be outside of Jesus, our condition pre-Christ. And here's the two things, one in verse three. The one in verse three, he says this, we are perishing. You see the last word in verse three? Here's what it means to be apart from Jesus, that we are perishing. If we're not in Christ, we are perishing. Now, when the Bible uses the word perishing, it does it in two different ways. Way number one is it uses the word perishing to describe a person that is about to die physically. It's perishing in that sense. Like this is like in Mark 4 where uh, Jesus is asleep on the cushion when the disciples are in the boat. You remember this whole scene? A storm comes and Jesus doesn't even wake up. And the disciples wake Jesus up and they look at Jesus and, and they say, don't you care that we are about to perish? We are about to die in this storm. So it uses it in that sense. We are about to die physically. But it also uses it in another sense. The second sense is it uses it in a way to describe spiritual death. Not just dying physically, but dying eternally and and spiritually. Now, this is the sense where you see it in John 10. This is the words of Jesus. This is how Jesus uses it in John 10. This will be up on the screen for you. Jesus says it this way. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. Okay, do you see the contrast? Eternal life on one side and perishing on the other. So it's not just a physical death that he's talking about. He is talking about the opposite of living eternally with God under the welcome of God. He's talking about the opposite of that. When you are perishing, you are not under the welcome of God. You are eternally living under the wrath of God. That's perishing. It's the same way that it's used in John 3.16. In John 3, 16, it's used like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life with God on one hand, perishing on the other. Now that is the sense that Paul is using it here. He is saying in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, that pre-Jesus, here is all of our condition. We are perishing. We are under the wrath of God, not the welcome of God. Like we're going to wake up in a million years from now and we are going to still be in what the Bible calls hell. Now, I just tremble to think about that, to say that. I mean, that, that just makes me shudder. That brings all sorts of sobriety to me when I think about that. That is what it means to perish. It means that forever, for all eternity, no welcome from God, all wrath. No pleasure from God. We're going to experience for all eternity the displeasure of God. This is what it means to perish. And Paul is saying that before we meet Jesus, before we are saved and rescued and redeemed by Jesus, we are all perishing. 
That is our condition apart from Jesus. And just let that sober you for a moment. That apart from Jesus, Paul is saying, we are going to spend an eternity away from God and all that is good. And specifically, we are going to spend an eternity in hell forever. That's what it means to perish. And he's saying, apart from Jesus, that's our lot. That's what we're headed toward. And the only thing separating us from that sort of perishing is that very thin line called death. That's it. That's the only thing keeping us away from that right now, apart from Jesus. So he says in verse 3, here's your condition, you know, apart from Christ, outside of Christ, your condition is you're perishing. Now, verse 4 comes along, and, and, and Paul's going to show us in verse 4 that we have a progression of problems. A progression of problems in verse 4. So let me read it to you. Let me point these, this progression of problems out. Verse 4. In their case, so in the case of people who are perishing, in their case, here's what's happened. The God of this world, I want you to underline that phrase, the God of this world in verse 4. The God of this world, that's phrase 1, has, and here's phrase 2, blinded the minds. That's phrase 2. He has blinded the minds of the, here's phrase 3, unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is the image of God. So think about verse 3 like this. Think about it setting the stage and saying, apart from Jesus, you're perishing. And then verse 4 comes along and answers the question, why are you perishing? Why is it that you're perishing? And and verse 4 answers it in three ways. I'm going to work back. There's three phrases here. I'm going to work back from these three phrases. So we're going to start with the last phrase and work back. So if you, if you think of verse 3 asking the question, why are you perishing? Verse 4 as the answer to why, here is the why. Why are you perishing? Here's answer number 1 in verse 4. Because, because we're stuck in unbelief. Apart from Jesus, we're in unbelief. We are not believing in the good news of the gospel and we're persisting in that unbelief. Okay, so the gospel is the good news of Jesus. The gospel is the good news that we were stuck in our sin. We had fired the first shot at God. We had rebelled against God. We are willful in our rebellion. We are indifferent to God in our life. We don't care about the things of God. We are stuck in the muck and mire of our sin. And the good news of the gospel is that God comes and meets us in the middle of that. He sent his son Jesus to come to earth to live a perfect life. Every place in your life where you have failed, God sent Jesus and Jesus succeeded. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sin. On the cross, all of our sin was handed to Jesus and Jesus' perfect record of righteousness was credited to us, given to us, handed to us. And then Jesus rose from the dead on the third day showing God's power over Satan's sin and death. That's the good news of the gospel. And when a man that is stuck in his sin, a woman that is stuck in their sin, that's perishing, believes in that gospel, puts their faith in that gospel, repents of their sin, runs to Jesus and throws their life in faith in Jesus, Jesus, the Bible says we are reconciled to God. We are adopted into the family of God. We are justified in Jesus. All of our sin is no longer held against us. Our debt is fully paid. Sons and daughters of God, empowered by the Spirit of God that takes up residence in us. That's the great news of the gospel. But Paul is saying, here is the problem with everyone who is perishing. You're stuck in unbelief. 
You're not, you're not believing that gospel. You're resisting that gospel. That's why you're perishing. Now, I always feel a need in our culture to clarify what the Bible means when it says believe. What it means when it says unbelief. Because there is a lot of confusion around that word in our culture. Like belief in the Bible is a big word, huge word. And we've got to make sure that we are seeing seeing the word belief in a biblical sense. See, here's the confusion that a lot of people have in our culture when they hear the word believe. Almost everyone in our culture believes that belief means we are aware of some facts about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. We're aware of those facts. We're aware that someone needs to put their faith in Jesus. We're aware of all of that. And we agree with all of that. Almost everyone in our culture thinks agree, you know, being aware of and agreeing of those facts means you have believed in a biblical sense. But that is not what the Bible teaches. That is the start of belief, but that is not the whole picture of belief in the Bible. Belief in the Bible is an awareness of those facts. It is an agreement of those facts. But belief happens in the Bible when those facts move away from, I'm just nodding that I agree with those. And those facts move into your heart and land with such force that everything changes. It's when those facts come into your heart and explode with life and vibrancy. That's belief. When you get a realizing sense of those facts. I've illustrated it like this before. And I, this is stealing an, an uh, illustration from an old pastor named Jonathan Edwards. He used honey to illustrate belief in the Bible. And his point is, is that, you know, he could come along and tell you all the facts about honey. He could show you pictures of honey. He could set honey in front of you on the table and talk about and describe the sweetness of that honey, the golden hue of that, this thickness to that honey. He could describe all of those facts and you could be aware of those facts and believe in a sense of like agreeing that that is true what you're saying. But he's saying that is not biblical belief to just you know, be aware of and agree. What biblical belief is, and I love this picture, is when for the first time, the honey actually hits your tongue and explodes with life and vibrancy on it. That's biblical belief. When it moves away from just a nodding about some facts that you agree with to actually doing something to you, exploding in your heart with life and vibrancy. That is what the Bible calls belief. And it's saying because people are persisting in their unbelief. That's not happening. They're, 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 not, they're not seeing that. People are stuck in their unbelief. And because of that, they're perishing. They're perishing. Okay, now it's going gonna, it's gonna to add something to this though. So why are we perishing? Because we are not believing. We're persisting in our unbelief. But then it's going to answer this question. Why are we persisting in our unbelief? Why is that? So just back up one phrase. Answer. He says because we're blind. We're blinded. It's because we can't get out of our unbelief. We can't move out of it. We don't have eyes to see what it is that we need to see to actually believe. This is what he's saying. That, that we can't see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that we need to see it to actually throw our life upon Jesus. We're blinded to it. If we go back to the honey illustration, you, you could put it in the terms of your taste buds. The problem is we don't have taste buds to look at Jesus and for him actually to be satisfying. Our taste buds have been distorted by sin to such a degree that we put Jesus in our mouth and we want to spit him out. See, and to be blind, 
or to be like without taste buds spiritually, it doesn't mean that you can't be aware of the facts. It doesn't mean that you can't know about Jesus. It doesn't mean that you can't read your Bible. It doesn't mean that you can't understand that he died for our sin, that, that he rose from the dead. It mean, you can do all of that and still be blind. See, what blindness means is you can know all of that, but it's still not to land on your heart with vibrancy and force. So he says we're blinded. That's why we persist in our unbelief, because we're still blind. And then he's going to answer one more question. Why are we perishing? Because we're persisting in our unbelief. Why are we persisting in our unbelief? Because we're blind. Why are we blind? He goes on to answer it. Because of the God of this world. He is going about blinding people. That's why. Because Satan and sin are conspiring in our heart to blind us, to keep us blind to the beauty of Jesus and to the wonder of the gospel. That if you want to talk about how spiritual warfare practically works out in everyone's life, this is how it works out. Satan blinds people to the beauty of Jesus. He he blinds people. This is what he does. He blinds them to keep them from seeing, verse 4, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Listen, that is what's happening right now in your neighborhood. That is what's happening right now among some people in your family. It's happening right now within some people in your friendship circles. Satan and sin are conspiring in their life to keep them absolutely blinded to the beauty of Jesus and just the amazing grace of the gospel. They can be aware of all the facts you want to talk about, but they just can't see it in such a way where they want it, where they really, really desperately want it. They just can't see that. This is what Satan does, and it's happening right now all across our community, all across our friendships, in our neighborhoods, workplaces, friends. This is what is happening. So here's the summary of our condition. We're perishing. That that means that we are on a collision course with the eternal wrath of God. Why are we perishing? Because we're persisting in our unbelief. Why are we doing that? Because we're blinded. Why are we blinded? Because sin and Satan are conspiring to keep our eyes from seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ. This is our condition pre-Jesus. But now look at verse 6. That's our condition. Verse 6 shows us our cure. What it is that God does to cure our condition. What it is that God does to rescue and remedy this condition. Here it is, verse 6. Here is the cure for our condition. For God who said, this is quoting Genesis 1. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. This is the God who in Genesis 1 said, let there be light. And there was light. It's a God with that sort of miraculous power. Paul says this, for the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that same God has done this. That same God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is our cure? It is God sovereignly shining his light into our hearts. There is no other way for a person to go from perishing to eternal life than this. It requires God to sovereignly do this thing called shining a light in their heart so that for the first time they can see just how beautiful and attractive and satisfying Jesus is. That, it takes the miracle of God doing that. 
In Ephesians 2, Paul uses different language there. He says, it takes God coming into a heart that is absolutely dead and breathing life into that heart and making it alive. Jeremiah uses a different word, the prophet in the Old Testament. He says it this way. It takes God reaching into our hearts that are all stony and hard and giving us a new heart of flesh and softness. It takes God doing that. It takes God taking a blind heart that cannot see the beauty of Jesus, shining a light into that heart so for the first time it can see. And it can see just how sweet grace is. It takes God coming into our mouth and it takes him reestablishing our taste buds so that now for the first time, Jesus looks wonderful. It requires God doing that sovereign work in your heart and in my heart and in our friend's heart and the hearts of everyone who is perishing for them to be converted, for them to be saved, for them to be rescued and redeemed. And can we just all say this? We want more of that around here. We want God to do more of that, shining a light into people's heart and saving them. Now, I want you to flip to Acts chapter 9. So just back a couple of books to Acts chapter 9. If you can't find it or you don't, can't get there easily, it's going to be on the screen for you. Now, Paul is the man who wrote 2 Corinthians. So this same Paul in Acts chapter 9 is the man who meets Jesus. So in 2 Corinthians 4, he's saying this. If, if anyone is ever going to go from perishing to everlasting life, it is going to require God to shine a light into their heart. It's going to require God to do that sovereign work. And I want to show you God doing that in this man, Paul, who wrote that. So this is Acts chapter 9. Now, let me just point out a couple of things really quickly here in Acts 9. Let's start in the first two verses of Acts 9. This will be on the screen as well. It says this, but Saul. Now, Saul and Paul are the same people here. Pre-Christ, he went by Saul. Post-Christ, he went by Paul. So this is Paul, the man who wrote most of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4. This is that man. So it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So let's just sum up verses one and two like this. Our man Paul hates Jesus and everyone associated with Jesus. So if you like Jesus, he hates you too. This is Saul. He is breathing out murderous threats against Jesus and anybody following Jesus. Murderous threats. He wants you in prison if that's you. This is, this is Paul. Okay, now go to verse 20. That's him in, in what, verses 1 and 2. Now go down 20 verses and look at what you see. This man who was breathing out murderous threats in verses 1 and 2, in verse 20 it says this. And Paul, or Saul, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. In 20 verses... He goes from breathing out murderous threats to this Jesus that I was just breathing out murderous threats against. This guy is the son of God. That's who he is. Now, can we just see that that is a fundamental change that has happened in our man? He has been radically reworked. There has been something that has happened in him. Now, verses three, four, and five show us what happened. 
What happened in, in Paul, Saul, to get him from murderous threats to proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue? Verses 3, 4, and 5 answer it. Verses three, uh, verse 3 says this. Now, as he went on his way, he is on his way to Damascus to wreak havoc upon the disciples. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and here's what happened. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul looks up, who are you? I don't know who you are out there that's talking to me. And Jesus makes it clear. And he said to them, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul is on his way to Damascus to kill Christians, imprison Christians. And all of a sudden, Paul, minding his own business, doing his own thing in his own little willful rebellion, in the middle of that, God comes on a dusty road to Damascus, shines a light into his heart and absolutely wrecks him. For the first time in Paul's life, he can actually see this Jesus, and Jesus is satisfying and good to him. That's what happened on the road to Damascus. God put a light in his heart. Blinders came off. For the first time, his dead heart spiritually now began to beat. His heart of stone became a heart of flesh, and then a chain reaction happened. God shines a light in his heart, Saul sees Jesus for the first time, and now this chain reaction of him being convicted for his sin, repenting of his sin, him running to Jesus, putting his faith in Jesus, all of that goes down right here, and God saves Paul. That's what happened. That's what produced the change from verse 1 to verse 20, is a light shone in his heart. He saw for the first time the beauty of Jesus, and he was a forever changed man. And that is the ache I have to see more of. That right there happened. Now let me just take a moment to apply this in the room. Some of us in the room this morning, the truth is right now we are perishing. That if the thin line breaks between us and our eternity, if the thin line of death occurs, the truth is right now we are going to perish. We are going to spend an eternity not enjoying the welcome and warmth of God, but enduring, terribly enduring the wrath of God. Now that is the sober truth for some of us in the room this morning. And the good news of the gospel is that doesn't have to be you. You don't have to perish. There are some in the room this morning that right now you are perishing, but God is right now shining a light on Jesus in your heart. And for the first time, Jesus is actually looking good to you. He's looking desirable to you. He actually seems satisfying to you. He actually seems like a savior that you really need in your life. Right now, that's happening. And if that's you this morning, man, I just want to plead with you. Here's the response. If that's happening this morning, here's the response you should have. 
Turn from your sin, repenting from your sin. That means to, to make an about face, to turn from it. And at the same time, expressing faith in Jesus, throwing your life on the person and work of Jesus. This man, Jesus, who lived perfectly for you, died on the cross for your sin, risen from the dead on the third day. It's you throwing your life on him. And the good news of the gospel is right now, if you do that, God will save you. God will rescue you right now. And there's some of us who need that rescuing work of God right now in our life. Now, I want to make one comment on Paul and his conversion. You know what's interesting about Paul is he was a very religious guy. This This was a man who towed the line morally. Like if Paul was in our culture and, and like going today and he was going to Stonegate, he would be a guy that is serving places. He would be a guy who had great insight into the Bible. He would have much of the Old Testament memorized. He would be a guy who is towing the line. He would be a guy that you would look at and applaud for just, man, his moral conformity to the commands of God. He would be all of that. And do you know what Paul would be this morning if he were here? Perishing. See, here's the thing about Paul. He did all the religious little things that people do, but here's what he realized on the road to Damascus, that in the midst of keeping all the rules, doing all the right things, being a good guy, knowing his Bible, reading his Bible, praying to God, learning about God, in the midst of doing all of those things, the problem with Paul is he actually missed Jesus. Now, I just want that to to be heard in this room. That there is a high probability that many people in this room are doing a lot of the moral things, a lot of kind of the religious little things that Christians do. And all the while they have been lulled to sleep that by doing these little things, surely they are right with God. And all the while the honey of Jesus has never hit their tongue. That is, listen, if, if Matthew four, 5, 6, and 7 is true, that is, that is occurring right now in some of our lives. That we are depending upon our religious rule keeping to get us to God. And we have, we have never had the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus land on our heart with such force that it, that it explodes in life and vibrancy and that we actually love Jesus. We actually want Jesus enough that we will repent of our sin and throw our life upon him. I mean, if that's you this morning, you've been around the church, you made some profession when you were three years old, you raised your hand, you did whatever people do. But Jesus, there's never been a realizing sense of that. You agree with all the facts, it just never landed on your heart with force and vibrancy. Here's the good news of the gospel is right now for some of us, God is shining his light in your heart right now who you've been like in church forever. And for the first time, Jesus actually looks attractive and good to you. I mean, this would be a moment that that God can save you too. That God can do his rescuing work in you too. Now, let me just apply this in one more way to, uh, to people in the room who are in the family of God. There's been a moment where you have like the, I mean, Jesus has landed on you. The person and work of Jesus has exploded in you. You repented of your sin. You put your faith in Jesus, trusting him, treasuring him above all things. That that has gone down in you. Can we just celebrate this morning that that is a miracle of grace? That is a miracle of God if that's you. 
See, when you, when you think about Acts 9 and Paul's conversion, that is not just a picture of one miraculous conversion. That is, the, that is the picture of every single conversion that has ever happened in any man, woman, or child. We were minding our own business, indifferent to God, and God shone a light in our heart. Blinders disappear, and Jesus, our Savior, looks beautiful. That's a miracle of grace. Can we, can we just take a second to remember that? If you're a part of the family of God, it is a miracle of sheer grace that you are. I, I love how Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors of a few hundred years ago, how he encourages Christians to think about this. And, and listen to what he says. He says, let me refresh your memories with your calling. Was there not a day, the memories of which you fondly cherish, when you were called from death to life? Fly back now to the day and hour if you can. And if not, light upon the season thereabouts when the great transaction took place in which you were made Christ forever by the voluntary surrender of yourself to him. He says, remember back to that moment, that day when God saved you. Remember that. He goes on. In looking back, does it not strike you that your calling must have been of divine origin? How gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God, came to you irresistibly, and came to you with such personal demonstration that God specifically for you put a light in your heart to make Jesus look beautiful. What grace there was. What was there in you to suggest a motive of why God should call you? Answer, there was nothing in you. It's sheer grace that God did that for you. Oh, beloved, we can hardly ask you that question without the tear rising in our own eye. Should not this calling of ours evoke our most intense gratitude, our most earnest love? Oh, if he had not called you, where would you be tonight? Where would you be? Think about that. Where would you be right now if God had not have sovereignly come into your heart and made Jesus look beautiful? Where would you be? And I just think about this moment when I was uh, in 13 years old in the seventh grade sitting at the back of this little rural country church and God saved me. And just to think, where in the world would I be apart from that? Can you just let your heart go there for a second? Selah on that. Where would you be? So this is the picture of conversion. Let me um, finish by giving you God's means of conversion. How it is that God goes about this saving work. So that's the picture. It's this, this view of God sovereignly reworking a person's heart where Jesus looks beautiful. Now the question is, how does he go about doing that? Answer is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Now think about what you have in 2 Corinthians. In verses 3 and 4, you've got our condition apart from Jesus. We're perishing. We're persisting in our unbelief. We're blinded. We've got all of those happening in verse 3 and 4. Then you get to verse 6, and you've got God shining a light into a person's heart so that now Jesus actually looks satisfying and good and beautiful to them. 
It's God saving a person. But now in verse 5, sandwiched between these two things. You've got the problem, our condition up here in verse 3 and 4. The cure in verse 6. Now look at what you have in verse 5. You have God's means. What stands in between these two things? Our condition and God's cure. Here it is in verse 5. Here is what stands in between. This is God's means of saving, of implementing his cure into the hearts of people. Verse 5. For, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but this is what we proclaim. But Jesus Christ, our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Here is God's means of saving people. It's when God's people are proclaiming God's gospel message. When they're sharing the good news of Jesus with people. That's how God goes about saving I mean, think of this passage like this. You've got our, our condition. We are perishing. An eternal, like, wrath of God coming for us. You've got God's cure down here of reworking our hearts so that Jesus looks beautiful. And standing between that is God's people. It's, it's almost as if God is saying, do you see the fact that I love to save people? I love to shine a, my light into their hearts. I love doing that. And here's what I'm doing in verse five. I am inviting you into that endeavor. I am, I'm inviting you to share my heart for people who are perishing. I'm inviting you into that, to play a part in that, to play a role in that, for you to join me in rescuing perishing people. Now, in light of that, I want to end by encouraging you to pray for four things for our church. In light of, like a church family like ours, being God's means to, to, to hand out his cure. In light of that, four prayers. Now, I'd love for you to write these down, and I would love for you to begin praying these prayers for our church family. Here is, here's prayer number one. Prayer number one is for God to give us a renewed burden for the perishing. For God to give us a renewed burden for the perishing. I was reading Romans chapter 10 this week, and Romans chapter 10 verse 1 just struck me. Where Paul says this in Romans 10, 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved. My heart's desire... Like the thing that I want, desperately want, the ache in my soul. This thing that I feel just gnawing at me and I cannot get away from. My heart's desire and prayer is that they would be saved. That perishing people would be rescued. That they would be changed. They would be radically rescued by God. That is my heart's desire and prayer. I mean, I am just asking God to give that, to distribute that across our church family. That Romans 10.1 would be felt all across our church family. That we collectively would share a deep ache in our soul. For just this deep burden, this deep longing, this deep desire to see perishing people meet Jesus. And listen, I think we need that desire renewed, don't you? Think about all the things you desire. If I were to slip a piece of paper in front of you right now and say, give me the top 10 things you desire in your life. I just had this sneaky suspicion that like almost all the things on that list in a hundred years from now aren't going to matter. Aren't going to matter. But can I tell you what will matter in a hundred years from now, in a million years from now, in a billion years from now? What will matter is perishing people meeting Jesus. That will matter in a million years from now. And in light of that, 
Man, I'm just praying that God would, would give us a burden for that, the things that really matter, that God would renew in us a burden for people who are going to meet God's wrath head on for all eternity. Prayer number one. Prayer number two is that, that God would give us a renewed urgency for the perishing, a renewed urgency. And I don't know of any other way to like get to the idea of urgency other than just to be very, very blunt. And, and this is a very humble and sober bruntness. But here is, here is the truth of the situation. People are perishing. That means people are going to hell. That means that people are going to experience an eternity apart from God. That means that people are going to experience all of their eternity under the wrath of God. And listen, if hell is real, and I think it is, and if hell is terrible, and I think it is, and if hell is eternal, and I really think it is, I think the Bible teaches all of those things, and if all of those things are real and people are actually going to be going to hell, if people are really perishing, that should do something to us. I mean, this is not like, This is not a game where you wake up tomorrow and push like reset. This is a forever eternal sort of a game. You don't get a redo or a mulligan on this thing. Like when people die apart from Jesus, they spend forever apart from Jesus. That is the brutal truth of this. And in light of that, and and listen, can we just see that people that we're talking about have names and faces. There are people in your family and in my family. There are people that live right next to you in your neighborhood. There are people who work with you. There are people who eat with you. They're your friends. Those people are perishing. And I just think that it's got to do something. That it's got to create like an urgency in us and a desperation and an intensity when it comes to this burden for people that are perishing. So can we just pray that God would renew that in us? That there would be a renewed sense of urgency and intensity for those who are perishing, that we would realize there is a very thin line called death that's separating them from eternal wrath of God. Number three, for God to give us a renewed hope for the perishing, that we would have this burden and it would also be mixed with this urgency, but both of those two things would be mixed with this hope in the sovereignty of God to save people. Can I just remind you of this? We don't just have a God who saves. We have a God who loves to save. Who loves it? And in Luke 15, I love this picture. It says that when one sinner repents of their sin, here is what happens in heaven. Heaven throws a party. That, like literally, God begins to rejoice over one person who goes from perishing to eternal life with him. That God throws a party at that. It's not just that God can save and does save. It's that God actually loves to save. So that should give us great hope as we pray for people, as we share the gospel with people, that we have a God who in the midst of all of these things that we're doing, he loves loves, 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 loves to rescue people from sin and Satan and hell. God loves to do that. And prayer number four, and we're done. Prayer number four is for God to give us a renewed passion to pray for the perishing. A renewed passion to pray for people who are perishing. 
that we would be a church family who feel the burden so deep and the urgency cuts right to the middle of our heart and we've got this hopeful expectation that God is going to save and that those three things would lead us to a renewed passion to plead with God to save people who don't know him. I'm talking like on our knees, keep us up at night, praying, desperately pestering God, bothering God to save people, your family, your friends, your neighborhood, that we would be pestering God for that. Now, in light of that, I want to apply this like this across our church. I'm going to ask everyone in our church family, I want you to look at me here. I'm going to ask everyone in our church family to develop what we're just going to call a top five. And a top five is the top five people that right now are likely perishing, that you are asking God to do a rescuing work in, that you are going to plead with God to save them, that you're gonna be willing to befriend them. As God opens doors, you're gonna be willing to share the good news of Jesus and what Jesus has done for you to them, that we, everyone in our church would have a top five that you know specifically that you are pleading with God to rescue. And listen, I just think we need a renewed sense of this. I, I cannot stress enough that if God is going to start using our church for the sake of people who are perishing, it will start with you and I being a people on our knees praying for God to save. And I think the best way for us to do that is for you to get a top five, for me to get a top five, and for us to begin the hard work, the labor, of praying with deep passion, with a deep burden, and with urgency for God to rescue them. I'm going to finish with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. And I pray that this would be felt and this would be true of our church. He says it this way. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. Oh, I pray that would be true for our church. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go to hell there. Not, let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Man, I pray that would be the posture of our church. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you a second just to allow the Spirit of God to work in this room and this is the most sacred part of our time together. This is when you get to respond to God appropriately. And for some in the room this morning, here is what's happened for you. For the first time, God has shown a light in your heart. And for the first time, Jesus is becoming desirable. For, for the first time, Jesus looks satisfying. And, and some of you in this room that that's happening right now, you may have been going to church forever doing a lot of like religious little things forever and just all the while missed Jesus. And if that's you right now, I just wanna implore you and beg you, here's the next step. You, you 
repent of your sin, you turn from your sin and you throw your life upon Jesus. You, you hold up your life and say, Jesus, I am trusting you to be my way to God. Your perfect life and death on the cross, your resurrection from the dead, I am trusting that to reconcile me to God. You throw your life upon him. And the good news of the gospel is that God will save you right now in this room. You came in perishing, but you can leave with everlasting life. And for those in the room who you have crossed over from, from death to life, that's, there's been a moment where that's happened. And I'm praying that God would give us a deep, deep ache, a renewed burden, a renewed urgency, renewed hope. And that would lead to us praying like crazy for the perishing. And I want to give you a moment right now to think about your top five. Like those, those people in your life, around your life, in your neighborhood, in your family, your workplace, your friends, that you are going to begin praying that God would rescue. And they have names and they have faces. These are not random people. These are people that you love. These are not projects you have like one little, more little notch on your belt. These are people that you love. The real people that need a real Jesus to come and rescue them. And so God, I pray, I pray for help in this for our church. God, I pray that the ache would be spread out. God, I pray that it would be felt, that a desire and a deep burden for people who are perishing, God, you'd give that to us. God, that we would have an urgency about that, that we would have hope that you're not just a God who saves, but who loves to save. And God, I pray that we would plead and intercede and pray on their behalf to you, a God who loves to rescue and redeem. God, I pray that our church family would stand in between the gates of hell and perishing people. That, that if people actually make it to hell in our area, that it would be us around their legs trying to keep them from it. That there would not be a person that, that goes to hell in our area, that perishes in our area, that would go unwarned and unprayed for. God, that it would be over our dead bodies that it happens. So, oh God, would you do that in this room? God, and we want to finish by celebrating and by singing and by declaring that we serve a God who saves. Who saves. That we've got a God who reaches down into hearts and rescues. And God, we just tell you that we're thankful for that. And it's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.